Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 18. And we're continuing our series. We've been calling hostage to the devil. I was looking in. There was a most fascinating story. I just want to read it. It was from the news. It came from the Independent. And here's what it said. It said, the incident that occurred with the brothers James and John Font, natives of Garona, is worthy of being included in the history of not only art, but also forensics. The story began in 2003 when the Fonts acquired the painting of portrait of Antonio Maria Esquivel, uh, attributed to the brush of Francisco de Goya, so the famous artist. The purchase was made at an auction that issued a certificate of authenticity for the painting. However, in doubt, the brothers decided to give the picture to an independent examination. You might want to do that before you buy it. I'm just going to throw that out there on the front end. But they did. So the examination showed that the picture could not have been painted by Goya. In addition, Esquivel received the award 11 years after the death of Francisco de Goya, who supposedly painted him with this award. After receiving the unpleasant news, you got to know that was really unpleasant news, right? You drop a lot of money. I have unpleasant news. After receiving the unpleasant news, the Font brothers decided to get rid of uh, the work using a certificate of authenticity that was canceled earlier. Are y'all following this story so far? So they basically get ripped off with a fake. They realize they paid a lot of money for the fake. And so they decide to rip somebody else off with the fake. Are y'all tracking with me now? That's what's happening. So they decide to get rid of it. The question was, is who's the victim to choose? Well, there was an Arab sheik uh, who acted through some intermediaries. So somebody that was representing the Arab sheik was ready to pay a large sum for the artwork. Uh, actually, 4 million euros. That's a lot of money. And the transaction took place in Turin, Italy, where, here's the thing, the scammers received a deposit of the canvas in the amount of 1.1 million euros. And at the same time, the fraudsters agreed to pay brokerage fees for the transaction to the representatives of the sheik which amounted to 300,000 euros. Now, here's what they did. They borrowed the 300,000 euros against the profit that they were expecting to make on the sale of the painting. All right, is everybody with me so far? Is this not fascinating stuff? All right, so I actually had somebody shake, a couple of you shaking your head no. So let me tell you what's going on. So they got ripped off, right? They got, a, they got bad artwork. And what they decided to do was to sell the bad artwork, knowing that it was bad. Are you with me so far? So they find a sheik that says that he's willing to buy the artwork from them. They're like, oh, that sounds great. So what they did was they set up an agreement between someone representing the sheik and decided to have this meeting where they had agreed to sell it for 4 million euros, right? But they had to give an advance on the sale. That's 300,000 euros, which came from them. So they're expecting to get 4 million, but they give an advance. Are you with me so far? 
Well, here was the problem. Everything about the sheik wasn't real. <laughs> Isn't that a great story? Nothing. So the scammers, when you think about it, they got scammed when they bought the artwork to begin with. And then they're like, we're going to go scam somebody. And they got scammed again. Isn't that great? Now, here was the kicker. They had been doing this exchange, right? They had a, a meeting place and they're having to go back home. The, the problem was, is word got out as to what they were trying to do. Uh, they've lost 300,000 euros that they borrowed against themselves. That's got to burn, right? But the catch is, is they've been bringing fake art back and forth across borders. Guess who was waiting for them when they got back home? The police. So they got scammed on the front end. They get scammed by other scammers, and then they get arrested when they come back home. That is not their best life ever. Is that fair? True story. Here's why I bring it up. We've been taking a look at the way that the devil and demons work. And we saw this in Genesis chapter 3 when you have the serpent that comes to Adam and Eve and they have everything that God has given them to enjoy. And that's what God says. Here's my creation for you and I want you to enjoy this. We need to take something from that, by the way, because there's absolutely nothing wrong with enjoying the good things that God has created. Go and enjoy it. The problem was there was this one thing that God says, don't mess with this. This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you have the serpent that comes in and kind of twists the words of God just a little bit, right? He says, oh, God wasn't saying that kind of stuff to you. I mean, if you eat of it, you're, surely you're not going to die, right? And so they start to listen to a different voice. And they take of what was forbidden. And when they did it, they made an exchange. And the exchange that they made was an exchange of life for death. That included spiritual death. There was a separation between them and God that didn't exist before. Uh, brought in physical death. But it also brought in relational death. You see that there was conflict that existed not just between them and God at that point, but them and each other. Before, you know, they never used the word, we were ashamed of our nakedness. But after... They were ashamed. They started to hide. They were hiding from God. It says that they feared God. That, that was something that they didn't experience before. So fear and shame. In other words, emotionally, they were rent in ways that they never had been before. And all because they bought the fake that the serpent was selling them. The problem is, at that point, they also handed over. The minute that they said that they were going to listen to the serpent, they handed over what Genesis calls dominion. They handed over the control, the responsibility that God had given to them to care for his creation. That includes each other, their relationship with each other. They hand it over to the serpent. And when the serpent took it, he took it. And everything that you would expect from the serpent, which is representative of all forms of chaos, is what they ushered into their world. Separation from God, separation from each other, separation, honestly, even from within themselves. Emotionally, they're just torn apart. In other words, the serpent was like the art heist. You think you're getting something when the real plan is to give you something else. Does that make sense? You think you're getting something authentic 
when really the plan behind closed doors is to give you something completely different. It's to give you a fake. And this is why we're looking at Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 20 this morning, where Jesus, talking to his disciples, says something about this situation. He says in verse 18, he says, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. He uses some words here that are really important for us to get our head around. One is he uses the word to bind, and the other is the word loose. When you think of binding, you typically think of taking control over someone. Or you might think of imprisoning someone. You might think of tying someone up. By choices that you make, you are limiting that person's ability to function because you've tied them up. It's what you've done. You can't move the way that you normally move when your legs are tied up and your hands are tied up. Make sense? So that's one thing is that. Now in the New Testament, persons could be bound by legal rules. They could be bound by the teachers of the law. Jesus was borrowing this from a place. I mean, for those that were coming out of more of a Jewish background, to bind meant that you put yourself under the teaching of a rabbi and their interpretation of the law. It restricted you. So that's one thing. But it also meant to expel people or even to receive people from a congregation. Now, that's the part that we often don't talk about. But when you have someone that comes into a body of believers that's bringing tremendous harm to the body of the church. Jesus says, and Paul even says, there's a limit to this. You do every measure that you can to restore them to the fellowship, but after a while, they've got to go. They are out. Notice that is a binding of them and a casting them out. So when you think of loosing, this is on the other side, you probably think of the other way, right? If binding is to tie up, and to keep things from functioning the way that it would, loosing, you think, we're going to free this up. We're going to liberate it. Or you're freeing something up to be what God meant for it to be. Now, let me give you a little bit of background as to what's happening when Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 18. Because it's actually not the first time that he has said this. Just before Jesus said this to the disciples, he said it before in Matthew chapter 16. The difference is, is where he was at. He was in a different location. He was in a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, I want to talk to you about this place because it's a really important place. Uh, Jesus takes the disciples and, you know, they've been going from place to place. They've been doing miraculous things. Jesus is getting a little bit of a name for himself. And by the way, you do the kind of stuff Jesus does. You're probably going to get a little bit of a name for yourself. Is that fair? Everywhere Jesus goes, people are like, man, that guy. And they would come to listen to him or just to watch the things that he would do. But he brings the disciples up. And it doesn't even say in Matthew 16 that they went into Caesarea Philippi. It says they came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. I was reading one New Testament scholar. He said, you know, it's interesting. Every other place it says Jesus went into. This one it says he kind of walks up to. But he's got the disciples there. And they're looking up at this place, Caesarea Philippi. And he says something to the guys One of the things he says to guys when he's there, because he's looking at, I'll explain what Caesarea Philippi is like here in a second, but he says, hey guys, who do you think that I am? A question that, by the way, we all have to answer, right? Who do you think Jesus is? He goes, who do you, guys, who do you think that I am? 
And, and Peter jumps out, which is what Peter does. You know, but Peter just jumps out with it. He says, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus goes, good for you, man. Now hold on to that. Because the reason that question is so important is because of what those guys were looking at when they walked up to Caesarea Philippi. What was that place? Well, during what's called the Hellenistic period, this is around 323 to 31 BC, the, the city was originally called Panias because of its close association with the worship of the god Pan. Some of you that have done any studies would probably recognize Pan because Pan had legs and horns and he looked like a goat, but he had the body of a man. Now, if you go into Caesarea Philippi, which if you go into Israel, it's one of the most beautiful places that you will ever visit. It's absolutely gorgeous. But there is a cave immediately to the north of Caesarea Philippi, and it was said to be the birthplace of Pan. And in fact, I've got a picture of it here for you to look at. It was said to be the birthplace of Pan, and Pan was described as the god of nature and of fields and forests and mountains and flocks and shepherds. So they built this sanctuary there. In fact, if you see the hole in the rocks there, most scholars would say that there was a temple that was actually built in front of the hole that just kind of went back to it. And they would worship in that place. And then right behind the place is where Pan would dwell. It's in the hole of the rock there. The pagan worshipers would make sacrifices at the mouth of the cave. Now, to the pagan mind, just so you know, the cave accessory of Philippi created a gate to the underworld, hell or Hades, where fertility gods took up residence during the winter. They believed that they went into the cave for the winter. And people in that place would commit detestable acts to worship these gods. For example, bestiality and prostitution, all happening in their place of worship. And it wasn't just that. It's they would literally, people were thrown into the gates of hell for a crime. Water, by the way, was flowing through the whole thing. And they would just throw them into the gates and the water was pouring. And as the water had poured, bodies would literally just pile over the rocks. In other words, this was a place of extraordinary evil and corruption. And Jesus walks the disciples up, looks at it. I mean, this place has a tremendous reputation for the evil that they've been up to. In the Old Testament, this place was called Bashan. And not far from Bashan, right behind it, is a mountain called Mount Hermon. And so here you have two things. One, a mountain that as the top of the mountain, what they believed is that's exactly where Baal would be, is at the top of Mount Hermon. And then at the foot of the mountain, as the water would rush down, and for anybody that's been there, it still moves even though it's been redirected. At the bottom of the mountain was the worship of Pan. Baal on the top, Pan on the bottom. And Jesus walks up with the disciples and he goes, look at this place. And I've got a question for you. Who do you think I am? Who do you think I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, you got that right. You've got that right. See, the Romans would call this place the rock of the gods. Jesus called this place the gates of hell. 
But when he looks at the disciples and Peter makes his proclamation, you are the Messiah, you are the son of the living God. He's like, you got that right. He says, and on this rock, I will build my church. For all of the evil that you see up here, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Now, for some, here's what they think. They think that what Jesus was saying was on this rock, namely Peter, I'm going to build my church. But that's not really it. What he was saying was on this rock, which is what Peter just confessed. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. On that message, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell will not overcome it. Nothing is going to stop this message. Absolutely nothing. So when Jesus talks about binding and loosing, he's talking about the church. I'm going to build my church. And what he's telling the disciples in this moment is I'm giving you, the church, an authority because the work of the church is to manifest the power of God and to break the power of darkness that has a hold on this space. By the way, great picture to show the guys. Let's go to Caesarea Philippi for a moment and talk about what's happening there. If you want to see evil, there it is. But even that, for all of its manifestation, is going to do nothing to stop what we're about to do. And we're going to be breaking some strongholds today. Even in Matthew 16, 19, here's what he goes on to say. Peter confesses him, and he's like, good job. And then he looks and he says, I'm going to give you, it's plural, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. You'll have those. Now, the keeper of the keys to these people, that's a big deal. It's a big deal. They have the power to let someone in or to shut somebody out. You know what keys are used for, right? You lock things with it or you open doors up. Did you notice that Jesus looks up and he calls it the gates of hell? He says, boys, I'm going to be giving you some keys. And I want some doors getting opened up. What people have been trapped behind, held back by, the afflictions that they've dealt with, the way of life that has brought them nothing but harm, and started in Genesis 3, we're about to put some keys in some doors, and some people are going to be getting freed up from this mess. That's what's going to happen. So the question is, what are we binding and loosing? And the answer is, whatever it is that's coming out of hell. That's it. So when you think of binding hell, remember, there's this image. What do you do when you bind? You tie it up, right? You restrain it. You keep it from moving as freely as it once did. And Jesus like, we're about to bind hell up. But the other thing that we're about to do is loosen heaven up too. So the church, this is your job. He handed it over to Peter and to the disciples and basically saying this, the world can see something completely different or they can see you look exactly the same. But whatever it is that you bind or whatever you loose on earth, notice he's saying, you got to make a choice here. Whatever you bind or whatever you loose on earth, he says, I'm going to agree with it on heaven. I'm going to agree with it in heaven. So whatever it is that you choose, I'm going to agree with it in heaven. It's what you chose going to respect the choice. Think about it like this. When we think of loosing, we're being loosed from the forces of hell. Maybe you're already a rage-filled person. Maybe you're already an addict. 
Maybe you're already caught up in sexual sin. Maybe you're already full of pride. Maybe you're already living with broken relationships and frankly not caring enough to do anything about the brokenness in those relationships. In other words, in the language of Jesus, you're bound up. You're tied up. You're being held hostage to a wrong way of life that by the keys that he just handed over to Peter and to his church, he says, you can be freed from this stuff. It could be over. And this is why Peter's confession is so important. When he says, you are the Christ, when you make that confession, just like him, you receive the keys to the kingdom. You got it. See, your soul just got freed up. Your destiny just got changed. You have a rule and a power and authority that indwells you that is greater than anything behind the rock. You've already got it. But notice this, Jesus expects you to make the choice. Whatever you bind or whatever you loose, but he gave a promise, will be done in heaven. It, it will be done. In, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is specifically addressing Peter, just so you know. So it's significant. If you were to look over at the book of Acts, Peter, Peter becomes a big deal. Is that fair? I mean, Peter becomes a big deal. I was just reading through the book of Acts and, and this, and it, it talks about the opening of the doors in the book of Acts. You see a theme here? There are gates, there are doors that are being opened up. Let me just give you three examples of what Peter went on to do. Three different groups, because of Peter, came to know the Lord. Uh, one is on the day of, uh, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 Jewish people are saved. The doors of heaven were opened up for them. Later in Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans who were outcasts, nobody liked these people, believed the gospel and they received the Holy Spirit. And again, Peter was there for the event. The doors opened up for them. In Acts chapter 10, Peter brings the gospel to the Roman centurion's household. Nobody likes these people either. But he brings the gospel to a Roman centurion's household, and they too received the Holy Spirit. The doors of heaven were opened up for this man. You see it? What was given to Peter, you've been freed because of what you know about me. He says, now Peter, go and use the keys, and let's start undoing some gates. Because some other people are held hostage just like you were before. Keys open doors, but keys also close and lock doors. And in John chapter 3, verse 18, we're told this, without faith in Jesus, the door to heaven is shut and barred. It is shut and barred. It is what can open a door for you, or as C.S. Lewis said, you can lock the door from the inside. But we're working keys no matter what we say. The question is, is what keys do you have working? So how does loosing and binding happen? You see some of this in verse 19. He said, I, truly, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, I'm with you. I'm with you. Now, here's what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that two of you can meet in a house and therefore you're a church. It doesn't mean that. Because Scripture delineates a church in a very specific way. There's very specific leadership in Scripture. I'm not worried about that today. But there's roles of pastors and elders. There's more to it than just saying, as long as two of y'all get together, it's more than that. But the reason he brings this up is because of Deuteronomy 19, 
where it says you cannot accuse somebody by the witness of one person, there has to be at least two or more witnesses, two or three witnesses. We're required to confirm something legally. And Jesus applies this to binding and loosing. He says, if you agree and if you ask, two things. In other words, maybe what it is that you identify is that there's false teaching happening in the church. That's got to be corrected for the good and the protection of the church. First, you get together and you confirm it. You don't have one person just sitting off in a dark wing of the building saying, I have an idea. It's that wise people in leadership of the church get together and they agree that there is a problem. And then you ask in the name of Christ to come down into place and to break the stronghold of false teaching. It's got to go. As well as other things, ways of life that go into the church, that break the witness of the church. In other words, what we're being asked is acting on God's behalf to bring things about in the world that will break the stronghold of evil, even in the church. Because it's still here. Satan still dupes us. He still fools us. Notice, after Jesus commanded his disciples to receive the Holy Spirit, he told them this in John chapter 20. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they've been retained. And really what Jesus is trying to say here is not that you have the ability to give them kind of any eternal sense of forgiveness. Only Jesus has that. But you have the message that they need so that they can get the forgiveness that they need. You've got it. You've got the keys. This is a tremendous responsibility for the church, isn't it? It's also a tremendous blessing. The question is, is what do we want to see flourishing in the world? It wouldn't take me one second if I said, how many of you know of someone that is absolutely bound up in sin? It owns their life. Honestly, every hand in this room would go up, mine included, and we're probably talking about ourselves in some ways. Fair enough? Bound up. The kind of things that you're just like, it just doesn't ever seem to go away. It always seems to beat me. And at its core, that is a spiritual issue. We've allowed a stronghold in our life instead of claiming an authority that Christ said you already have over the stronghold in your life. Paul would later say it like this. He says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty for the breaking down of strongholds. It's not a matter of, are there strongholds? It's a matter of, what are yours? What are yours? So friends, here's, here's what I want you to see this morning. This is what I want you to hear. We're all in a common boat. We really are. We, we bought the art. We bought the fake. And with it was a tremendous cost. I mean, if, if you think that 300,000 euros is a lot, what do you think the worth of a soul is? And we bought it. Oh, we bought it. And, and then what we do is we hang the art on the wall. And we act like it's the real thing. We even invite other people into the home and we go, oh, look at what's on the wall. All the while, it never actually came from the master. It came from a fake. But we keep it. And we sell it. And we promote it. And Jesus is saying, and that's why it's a stronghold. Because rather than dealing with the reality that what you've bought into wasn't worth it, you got to call the fake the fake and get on to the real. He says, and so I'm offering you something much, much better. 
this morning, this is what Jesus is offering. Maybe, maybe you, like me, I came to Jesus when I was 11 years old. Do you know that almost every day I still have to come back to Jesus? Did you know that? Not, not for my salvation, but I do still have to come back to Jesus to say, I didn't handle that well. I said this, I said this to someone that is created in your image, and they deserve better than that from me. I still have to come back to Jesus. This is the beautiful thing about confession. We don't make enough of it, but confession frees us from it. We call it what it is. We're not worried about rationalizing it. We're not worried about justifying it. We're worried about seeing it the way that Jesus sees it, which is an affront to him and his kingdom and his glory. And he says, move on from it. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. That is the promise of the word of God to you. Your part, much like what Jesus was saying here, is you got to call it what it is. Name it for what it is. And then put it at the feet of Jesus. Because this is what we believe. We believe, we believe that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So when a person tells me, well, the church is full of hypocrites, here's what I say. Everybody in my church already knows that. Myself included, by the way. There are just those days that we don't measure up. Is that fair? We just don't. I already knew that. But Christianity isn't true because we behave Christianly. Christianity is true because Jesus rose from the dead. So if the wages of sin is death, the rest of it for you is the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And the stronghold, you remember the image of the cave that I showed you? Pan's cave, the gates of hell. What does scripture go on to say? Jesus walks up to Caesarea Philippi. He looks at what is called the domain of death and says, I'm going to whip you. And you will have no hold on those that will claim hold on me. You will have none. So question is, where are your keys? Did you open the gate or are you locking it from the inside? And it's only a question that you can answer for yourself this morning. And frankly, for those of you that have even confessed Christ, you can still lock the gate from the inside by persisting in sin. You just can. But isn't it better to move on from it? Isn't it better? I mean, isn't it better to see relationships healed. Isn't it better to receive the grace and the goodness of Jesus? Don't deserve it. He's been offering it. Isn't it better to see where relationships have been broken, the measures that are taken so that the stronghold and the break in those relationships is gone? Isn't it better? Isn't it better? And the answer is, it always is because it no longer holds you. And some of you are sitting here feeling just like Adam in Genesis chapter 3. God comes walking in the cool of the day, and you're like, I got to get. And instead of looking at him and calling it for what it is, you want to run. I've done it too. But we respond that way. For some of you, it's your human relationships. They're just a mess. They're a mess. But you won't take any measures to put things back together. Or as Paul says, insofar as it's up to you being at peace with everyone so that there's not a stronghold in what your marriage looks like and what your friendships look like. You just don't own it. But then there's also just the way that you feel about yourself. Just the way you feel about yourself. In Genesis 3, remember? Adam was just ashamed. Just shame. What I want you to remember from Genesis 3 is this, is that in spite of that, God sought him out in the cool of the day. 
proof again of his mercy and his grace. And this morning, you're sitting right here, and he's pursuing you too. What was for Adam? What was for Peter? What was for Jeremy? Is also for you. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org. 